Hello, and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, it's a very special episode on two fronts. First off, this is episode 100 of FinTech Impact. So I'd like to thank you all who've listened in the just under two years that I've been doing this and hope that uh, you've enjoyed the ride because I most certainly have. Made lots of friends, learned lots of things, and continue to be energetic about continuing on with this. Second reason this is a special episode is because Michael Kitsis himself was gracious enough to lend the time to be interviewed for this podcast. For those of you unfamiliar with Michael, Michael is the publisher of the Nerd's Eye View blog at Kitsis.com, a partner and director of wealth management at Pinnacle Advisory, and co-founder of XYPN and AdvicePay. And beyond that, Michael's probably the most, if not one of the most, respected names in financial planning in the world. And with that, here's my interview with Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello, Jason. How are you? you? I'm fantastic. I'm even better that you made the time to do this for me. Thank you very much. Oh, absolutely. Congratulations on 100 episodes. Uh, we've run a podcast for a long time as well. I, I know what uh, just a, a slog, a little bit of a, a beast of burden it can be carrying a podcast through for that long. So congratulations <laughs> for powering through and building a connection to listeners and growing a, a, a following for the work that you're doing. Thank you. And before we get started, let me just plug that podcast. It's the um, Financial Advisor Success Podcast. And any advisor not listening to it needs to subscribe immediately. I say that just because Michael's on there, but I constantly refer to it as the gold standard in learning practice management in this industry. So uh, well, thank you. Uh, well done. That. It, is, it, is, it has been life altering to many people I've spoken. So thank you. So Fantastic. let's get started. So you already told me about who you are, what you do. So tell me about your personal journey into into this industry before we get into fintech. So what got you to where you are today? Yeah, my landing in the industry was was really quite random, frankly. I was a, a liberal arts education student. So, you know, we teach you to think, but prepare you for nothing in particular. <laughs> I was a psychology major, theater minor, pre-med student. And the only thing I really figured out by the time I was graduating was that I did not want to do psychology, theater, or medicine. <laughs> so I was graduating, needed a job, and kind of fell for a good pitch from a sales manager at a life insurance company. Come be a financial advisor. We want young, hard workers. There's great income potential. You know, you control your own destiny. All these things that you know certainly, in retrospect, like sounded great to a 22-year-old testosterone-driven male. Is like I can conquer the world and do anything. So I just came plowing into the industry head first. No financial financial background, no economics background, no context for the industry. It went horribly badly because I did not understand that I was not taking a financial advisor job in air quotes. I was taking a life insurance sales job. I'm not a good salesperson. So that didn't last very long. But I like I was just fascinated enough with the industry out of frankly just sheer dumb luck. I ended out mentoring under the one person in that office of about 30 insurance agents who was a CFP, who was a certified financial planner. And so there's like 29 people in the office that are just out there trying to sell variable universal life insurance because that was the hot thing 20 years ago when I was coming in at the peak of the 90s boom, the tech bubble. And then here was this one guy who did this completely different thing where he would just go out to people and ask them about all of their different financial problems and challenges and then help them with whatever thing they said they had a problem with, because we had a decently wide product shelf, and there was almost always a solution you could implement them. And honestly, for mine, it was like, that. this just seems easier. <laughs> Instead of trying to sell your one thing to everybody, just going to them and asking what their problems are and giving them what they need. It just seems easier. And so that's how I actually started morphing down this road of financial planning, made a couple of firm changes early in my career, just trying to find the right landing place and fit. 
ended out landing out of sheer dumb luck at a good early stage independent advisory firm that was growing really well in the early 2000s. Joined them in in late 2002, early 2003, when they had just under $200 million under management as an independent advisory firm, which was a, actually was a pretty sizable firm back then as their director of financial planning, where I wouldn't have to go prospect because that was the thing I knew I was terrible at in life insurance days. And I could just focus on building financial plans and delivering financial plans to clients. And 17 plus years later, I'm still there. The firm went from under 200 million over $2 billion under management. And over time, I kind of branched out to do wider industry stuff as well as you know, the firm had capacity and I could, I could start doing some other things on the side. Excellent. That's interesting. It's not an uncommon story that you basically stumble into this industry. You typically get sucked into the insurance world first because they seem to be always recruiting for people. Yep. And you were lucky enough to have the serendipity of someone who showed you the light, for lack of a better term. And, and I often and the sheer like stubbornness to not be willing to give up after horribly failing at prospecting in my first year. Persistence pays off. So, and I often say one of my greatest gripes about this industry, and it seems to be universal around the world, is the number of bright, intelligent people that get brought into this industry and then spit out because guess what? You didn't sell enough. If I didn't have the luck of one person who showed me there was a little bit of a different way of doing this, like I just would have moved on. I said, I don't get it. And I would have moved on. Now the, the irony to me, actually looking back, like I am actually the child of two computer programmers. And so had I been chewed up by the financial services industry, I probably would have ended up in the tech industry. And for all I know, I might've actually still managed to full circle this back to fintech given where like technology world is gone but like i'd probably be a computer programmer doing back-end dev work on a payments system yeah. not out on the front end advisor well, side so that explains your love of spreadsheet technology so it's, it's funny how all roads all, all roads led to rome in this, in this instance yes <laughs> yes yes so i i kind of wonder in retrospect like maybe i actually just ended out exactly where i was going to be in the <laughs> tech world no matter what i just took a different path free will is a myth okay so <laughs> let's jump into the fintech side of this so um you know, I want to take some time to explain to not only the U.S., but the global audience, how fintechs kind of evolved over time and where we see it going. And I'm sure you and I have both seen different interesting things going on. But, you know, the U.S. is probably, if not absolutely certain, the leader in the world in fintech in terms of the technologies advisors are using. Let's just talk about what you've seen in the last 10 to 20 years and how you've seen that evolution play out. I kind of view this in... I don't know, like little like stages, little mini, mini epochs, because I think a lot of what's happened in the technology world, and the advisor technology world really has morphed because of the environments in which you can build tech. Mm -hmm. So, right, you take tech back to early days of computers in the 80s and 90s, right, where hard coding software we're debugging as best we can because once we're ready to send it out, we're going to put it on a disk. We're going to mail it to people. You're not allowed to do another update for nine to 18 months. So you better darn well make sure it's right. You know, very stage releases, huge buildup, huge release stage, very painful overhead costs for building and developing, getting that out, very high stage and barrier to entry. And so just not, not a lot of innovation, not a lot of innovation uh -huh. in advisor space. Then the internet showed up. And so to me, like stage one of how the internet started changing this was, hey, now I can just make the software online. I can do more of a continuous release schedule. This makes production a little easier. It makes deployments a little easier. It brings down costs. It makes my software faster and more agile. And then, of course, we literally made agile uh, software development processes. <laughs> and I think just the our ability and pace to iterate on advisor tech software got a whole lot better in a way that made the software much more responsive to needs of the marketplace and started really materially improving the quality of software that we had. 
the second stage was when APIs really showed up. Uh, in, you know, I guess like mid to late 2000s decade that like they really started to get a little bit of traction uh, in the US, like TD Ameritrade launched their VO platform, sort of the first big open architecture API driven ecosystem for advisor tech. And when the API showed up, that to me is really when the world of advisor tech changed. And what's turned upside down over the past 10 years of advisor tech since like really the rise in traction of APIs is historically most like the holy grail of advisor tech was the ultimate all-in-one plot right and it was like it was the holy grail because you were always in search of it and no one ever found it everybody would try to make these all-in-ones and in practice if you tried to make everything all-in-one you ended out with like mediocrity in every category because it was so stinking complex to build everything all-in-one that most people ended up going back to sort of the best of breed categories but it was excruciating because the best breeds didn't talk to each other because there were no integrations because these double were entry no no coordination all yep. the, yeah exactly because these were all independent software companies Absolutely. and so the the rise of apis to me has sort of turned this ecosystem upside down in a whole bunch of different ways. So number one, now you can actually have integrated platforms with independent software companies. We can take a whole bunch of best of breeds, mash them together, flow the data through APIs, and I as the advisor can get my integrated experience of software across all my different platforms, but I don't have to buy an all-in-one and hope that company can be awesome in everything at once. I can buy my best of breeds and link them together. Now that's still been a little bit of a painful 10 years, like okay, can we get these things to integrate a little bit better? Like uh, I'll admit from the advisor end, that data flow has not come as quickly as you want, right? There are challenges to API base, particularly in an ecosystem as large as the US. We publish a a fintech map of all the different players in the US alone. and Which like, you do annually. I, yeah, and you know, I, I, I mean, I produced that originally, just literally, I call it like the map. Like, here's how you navigate the landscape was sort of the idea. Like, you can find your solutions. Except now, like, a lot of people use it as the punchline to a joke. Here's how insanely complex the U.S. advisor tech space is. There's a bajillion companies, like because there's so many logos on it. And, you know, I, I didn't I didn't set out to do that, but as any entrepreneur knows, sometimes you just make a product and you see what the marketplace is going to do with it. So apparently, it's it's sort of the joke of the complexity of the tech. And like as someone who has a company on that map, like we've lived the pain of that. That there's so many different companies to integrate to, and API integrations are generally all point to point integrations. So you know, if I want to go out and work with dozens of different companies, like I literally got to build dozens of pipeways one at a time. And then we get into the like, well, are we going to build to your APIs? Or are you going to build to mine? And it's funny and, because you have like Zapier who's decided to sit in the middle. Right. We be that kind of exchange network for so many yep. of these things because but, companies can't focus on them all. Right. And so then like advisors try to show up and make their own connection points off of our APIs using right. using Zapier. But then that gets a little messy okay. and you don't always push the richness of the information that you need. So we, I think we're working through that. It is getting better. There are kind of these constellations of software they're starting to form because they have deeper integrations and so they get more deeply tied together and they strategically choose who they're going to work with and then you get groupings of software that really do have the depth of integrations but it it fascinates me that you even when I started my career 20 years ago it was sort of known the good tech was all in the large firms for the relatively simple reason that they just they had the largest advisor base over which to amortize development costs to make it economical to bid software. And independents had terrible software because there were only a small number of us. We were scattered all over the place. The sales are all like one seat at a time. It was very hard to scale a software company. And so 
they sort of sat off to the side. And now we come full circle 20 years later in this environment of online continuous development with APIs to weave everything together, including integrating to large old school legacy systems and, and big enterprises. And now in the US, independent software companies like Money Guide Pro and eMoney Advisor have 50 plus thousand user seats. And the largest firms only have 10 to 20,000, which I realize even that's a larger market space than some countries for their advisor base. You know, we're huge with 300,000 in total in the US. But you see these independent software companies that have tens and tens and tens of thousands of users, way more than what any individual company could have. And so now we've completely turned this upside down where the independent software companies actually have a larger base of users to amortize development costs over than large enterprises. And those software companies usually just focus all their development on their particular thing because that's their best in breed area. And I feel like the while the all-in-one has been sort of the holy grail that we've held out for 20 years, the shift in the technology environment because of the internet and APIs is leading to a world where like, I'm not sure we're ever actually going to get there because the best in breeds now are so much better at what they do so much more focused on it, iterate on it so much faster and can amortize their development costs over a much, much larger advisor base. I don't know whether any large enterprise that's home growing software can catch up now. At, at best, like you might build your advisor dashboard, like you might build your proprietary layer. And we're certainly seeing that evolve here in the US that enterprises want to build their proprietary layer and then plug everything else in. But they're actually sometimes building a, a relatively thin layer. I mean, it may be a valuable one. I'm not trying to knock what they're building, but they're not even trying to build the whole stack. They're just trying to build their layer, their control piece, their input piece, and then plug everything else in the back end because the independent companies have more resources, faster development place, better subject matter expertise in the in the software category, and just continue to outpace anybody that tries to build all in ones. Yeah, but it doesn't make sense for them to try anyway. Now the economics have moved so far beyond uh, beyond yeah. that. Whereas, you know, are you really going to? Let's just say you pick on a couple of aspects: um, client portals, aggregation, reporting, asset tracking, and financial planning. Right. That's. Yep. You know, you're never going to get anything other than mediocrity having your one dev team work on all of that. Like it's, yeah. it's you know, yeah. I mean, just you, you like, and are you really going to spin up a pod or multiple pods for each of the software categories that you're working in? Like, if you're a large enough company, maybe you can do that. But still, like, okay, congratulations, your company's so large, you can put like a hundred devs on this, and you've got five to ten in each of these different product areas. Well, okay, but like. E-Money's got 200 devs just on the planning software and Redtail's got a couple dozen just on the CRM and, and you start breaking all these categories back apart again and you're still going to get out-expertised, out-devved, out-scaled, out-manned because the independent companies have been able to get so large. And just I think it's a thing that could not have happened until the internet showed up and API connectivity became possible. Yeah. Like, to me, that, that was the enabler that started this change in the landscape. And I, and I agree with you. I don't, I don't know that we're coming back from it at this point. If anything, certainly when I look in the US, I feel like it's accelerated the pace of technology startups because now independent advisors that want to make software can actually see a pathway to make a very sizable, very successful financial technology firm that just 
like wasn't feasible in the past if you were just going to sell to small independents and you never had a migration path to the enterprise market. Yeah, agreed. And it's interesting too. I think one other kind of paradigm I would I would put on there is just the entire AWSification of everything. So the ability to use yeah. Amazon Web Services or, or Azure, uh, reducing your overall cost of startup, but just the speed at which I'm able to see these companies iterate now is yeah. just astonishing compared to before. And in addition to that, now further to your point about the, um, the independent, like having these large independents basically sell to everybody, the feedback mechanism that they get from all of these different parts of the, yeah. of the industry, giving them feedback and making the product better for everybody. If you're just one company working on your one thing, it's your people's problem or how they see it. Yeah. You're not benefiting yeah. from the giant the yeah. wealth of knowledge out there in the industry. So I, now I, I will add one caveat though, actually to that point that I have watched in our space, at least down here in the US, I see it over the past, yeah. I don't know, like five to 10 years that to me, it's, it's becoming very noticeable. So most advisor tech, at least on the US side, are fall in the category that I call the homegrowns. So the homegrown is advisor has problem, can't find solution, gets aggravated, makes solution, friends hear about it and want to buy solution, sells solution for friends, now owns software company on site. I'm experiencing and, that myself. You have too. So. <laughs> yes. And like, I mean, that was certainly our story for building advice pay. Yeah. And just when you look in the US space, like that's the story for Orion, Tamarack, Redtail, TRX, iRebal. Just our list goes on and on. Most of the software companies in the US space were homegrowns. Uh, we've had almost no just independent venture funded startups that came in and said like, hey, I think the advisor space is cool. I'm going to make a software in this vertical. Like it's almost all homegrowns. And the cool thing to be about homegrowns as like being wired as an independent advisor myself is like the homegrowns get built for us first because it's usually made by us. It's made by someone on the independent side who then grows and scales the software. You get traction in the independent space. You validate your product. You do your early iterations. You prove out the concept. And then you pivot into enterprise because that's still ultimately where the seat count is. And you can pull in uh, contracts and revenue growth a lot faster in enterprises than still plucking away at one independent firm after, after another yeah. once you get through your initial traction. But the challenge when that pivot happens is sort of twofold. The first, and we've even felt this on advice pay as we've now scaled up and gone through this pivot from starting with the independents and now selling into enterprises. Enterprises have all of their own unique needs around integrations, depth of compliance, oversight, and permissioning protocols. There's a bunch of stuff that doesn't exist in the independent world, which mm -hmm. means a whole bunch of your dev cycles for quite a while just get gobbled up with enterprise stuff that you need to do to build and scale your company. But it's it sort of in the purest sense, like it's not really iterating on the core product anymore. So like your your core product iteration slows down. We had to be very deliberate in our in our realm to balance out, like we're gonna do a, a pure product feature that's relevant to the independents and the end users, and then we'll do an enterprise thing. And then we'll do another thing for the end users, and then we'll do another enterprise thing. And just trying to balance that out so it didn't yeah. feel like our product stopped iterating because all the devs are working behind the scenes on enterprise features. The second challenge that I found that's even a little bit more pernicious, we haven't felt this pain out of vice pay just because of the nature of the product and what we do, but I see it for others, particularly like financial planning software in our space, is there's sort of the old saw, independents are small and nimble, enterprises are big ships that turn more slowly. So they tend to lag a little bit, but when they come in, they come in full force because they're big firms. But what I've watched started to happen is because a lot of the enterprises in our space 
are lagging the independents in our world on the US side, like RIAs have been doing this asset owner management model and building bases that way for 20 years. Broker dealers are only now just kind of figured out like, oh, maybe this fee-based thing actually is going to have traction and we should probably be pivoting that way. So like- After they've lost a ton of assets. Right, on. after they've lost market share every year for 20 straight years to it. And so like thrilled to see it. They're winding out commissions. They're winding up fees. They're more client-centric models. Like I like all of that shift, but their advisor base is often still stuck kind of five to 10 years behind in business model evolution. Uh -huh which means like technology needs and servicing needs than where the independents are. And so when the enterprises show up and make enterprise demands for a lot of these companies, like they're pulling the software backwards. They're like, hey, our advisors are in 2010 and we'd like to get them to 2015. And all the current independent advisors are like, I'm like 2020 trying to get ready for 2025. Yeah. And the software starts getting built backwards for where we were five to 10 years ago instead of where we're going five to 10 years from now. And I can't entirely blame the, some of the advisor tech companies to do this. It's like the sheer seat count, the sheer user count and revenue opportunity in large enterprises is a really big number. Like you can't in good faith to your company just walk away from that business. But ironically, as, as enterprises have so shifted over the past five years into advisor tech, moving away from build philosophies and into buy philosophies or lease philosophies because they realize they can't keep up with the pace for all the reasons that we talked about. The actual iterating pace of software in advisor tech, I feel like has actually slowed down in a lot of categories. I don't see a lot of companies building for where the industry is going to be in 2025. I see a lot of companies trying to build for getting enterprises who are still in the 2010s and 2015s up to 2015 to 2020 and today. And yeah. so we'll, yeah. that'll pass at some point, but it's been striking to me that I can see that shift. Some software categories more than others. I think financial planning software in our space has been particularly notable that like all the biggest planning software companies are building downscale simplified planning software. Right? Like yeah. we've taken... 20 years of awesome cumulative development to make our software less capable <laughs> because we're trying to catch oh. up some enterprises that are still in the old commission-based sales world and not really getting paid for advice and pulling them forward. And so like, I'd love to see them get pulled forward, but I don't see anybody building planning software for 2025. I see everybody building planning software, trying to get folks that are five to 10 years behind the curve back up to today. We can talk about that off air. I've seen some interesting stuff, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. And it's so, as a, you know, as a business owner, it's a challenge, right? You have to go where the money is to, for the, mm -hmm. for the growth of your business. But again, you're, I think you see that, that same model everywhere to different degrees of, of demand on both sides, the independent versus non-independent. And yeah, you can't ignore that, but you also can't focus on that because then you're going to let someone else come in ahead of you and create problems or, or you're going to, you're going to alienate your client base who's looking for the 2025 solution, right? Yep. It's a challenge. And or, it's, it's, or just do you, you open yourself up for the next disruption. That's I it. mean, I, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to, like the companies or the categories that are suffering with that, I think get more prone to disruption. Like when I look in the US space right now, notwithstanding the dominance of some of the big players, I actually think financial planning software is the most disruptable category of software in the US right now. CRM has a little bit of room for disruption, but big, I'll give them credit, like some big firms like Salesforce are actually iterating pretty quickly. The independents in our space, like Wealthbox and Redtail are iterating pretty quickly. The performance reporting software is just like, we all account for the numbers. It's really important to account for them. But like you can only be so innovative in accounting for the numbers because the whole point is not to be creative in accounting for the numbers. They're supposed to be accurate representations of the numbers. So it's striking to me that I actually think some of our software categories have never been more prone to disruption right now of the new entrant that comes in and says, I'm going to set the vision for where I think this business is going in the next five to 10 years 
because a lot are trying to have help enterprises catch up to today. I agree with you. I mean, it's, like it's especially the planning software. I totally, the frustration I see is that those companies built their systems on the back of people who believed in planning and wanted to do more comprehensive things and more iterative things and, and basically be able to map the entire client's life. And now they're trying to sell down market to people who are just like, look, I need to do something, but I don't want to do that. And it needs to be simpler and easier. Yep. I, I totally get that there's a market for both of those, but I have to feel like, yeah, you're, you're going to set yourself up for future disruption. Plus, you know, in fairness, I look at the U.S. market and please contradict me, please disagree if I'm wrong here. I look at the major players there and I look at the architecture they have and I think, man, you're, you're getting legacy now. Like you guys are looking a little bit long in the tooth in your underlying, underlying software. And I can't imagine you're going to be able to meet the next paradigm when it comes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I know some firms, um, particularly like the portfolio reporting and accounting space that are tying into like the really old infrastructure guts of like how custody works and how assets get tracked and how clearing works and how transfers work. And there was a company in our space and, you know, in, in deference to them, I'll leave them nameless. They were hiring a COBOL developer. They were trying to find someone who knew COBOL. And, and I think they hired someone who was in his sixties who did this in his twenties when COBOL was <laughs> dominant in the seventies because that's what the back end was still written in. And they needed someone that understood the, the architecture for it. So like the, yeah, you know, when you get into the guts for some of the large firms, I, I mean, to its credit, like 40 years of iteration, that software runs smooth. Like that has yeah. been well-tuned and optimized, oh, yeah. but, <laughs> but like kind of hard to build modern integrations to it. I have that exact experience, by the way, in trying to get data from a custodian and have it spit out in COBOL. So I, I know what that's like. <laughs> And a funny yep. side story, I once knew a guy who basically was a computer developer in, uh, was a developer in the telecom space forever. So he had all these old computers lying around and his kid taught himself every language coming up. So when this kid graduated from university at 22, he was like the only one who knew how to co program in COBOL. And essentially it was like, okay. What a job so, opportunity. Oh my God, right? And it was, it's funny because I've, I've told that story a couple of times on a couple of panels. And every time I tell it, guaranteed one of the panelists turns around and says, can I get an introduction to that kid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like, oh, funny you mentioned that. I'm actually yeah. struggling with that right now. I, I keep telling people, don't teach your kids, don't teach your kids Python. Like, yeah. teach them COBOL. There's, there's a long tail of businesses that are going to yeah. need that P service. Particularly, I think, in, in fintech, because so much of what we have to do still plugs into some, some very old pipes at the end Never of the mind day. that those people who know that language are going to be dying off shortly. Yeah. So it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah. the... The other challenge I'll admit that I'm I'm seeing to this as well that frustrates me a lot just watching the landscape is there's a very weird dynamic to me that's going on right now with particularly some enterprise firms that have what at the end of the day are people problems, culture problems. Hey, we want to get more planning centric, but historically we were a commission-based sales organization and like that, that sales culture still permeates strong. So it's hard to get people to care about planning when they've been rewarded their entire careers for being good at sales instead. And they're not necessarily that terribly well trained at the end of the day. You know, here in the US, our entry level bar is extremely low. Like it's a series exam from FINRA. You it takes you a couple hours to do it. You can study for it often. Oh Michael, you haven't been to Canada yet. Um, <laughs> and so we have this painfully low bar and a bunch of enterprises I find then come in and say, well, we need to get more planning and advice centric because that's the future. So we want all our people to go out and start getting paid for advice and delivering financial plans. And the problem is like they just literally don't 
actually know that much about planning stuff. Like they just, I'm not trying to knock them. They just, they've never been trained in it. They never got CFP certification. They didn't necessarily come from a finance background. The only thing they ever got trained in was their company's products because that was what you were trained to sell. And the fundamental concern that that's cropping up for me, and I'll pick on planning software a little bit because this is where I see it the most, is company tries to get more planning and advice centric, goes to their reps, say, hey, we got to do more planning advice. And the reps say, well, like, I don't want to use that planning software. It takes too long. Yeah. And so they then the enterprises go back to the software companies and say, our people say the software takes too long. You got to make it simpler. So they make it simpler and then they try to redeploy it to them. But the fundamental problem is you can make that software take three seconds. It's still three seconds too long for a culture that celebrates sales over advice and an environment where they've never been trained to add value on whatever, on top of whatever the software is. And like, I see a lot of companies taking what essentially are culture problems and talent development problems, and they're trying to solve it with technology. And it's not going to solve the problem. Like if you want to really get your advisors going, don't buy them simpler planning software run CFP classes in every branch in your country, across the country. And then in a year or two, come back when they have all this additional knowledge that they could really get paid for because they got things between their yep. two ears that they could sell as value and the software supports and then see how willing they are to actually adopt the planning software and start shifting their business models and do all the other stuff that you may be trying to accomplish strategically. And I would add, change the incentive, the compensation model to reflect that they should yep. be doing those actions. I mean, we, you know, I live in a quote unquote bank owned broker dealer hell in Canada, uh, <laughs> where the vast majority of, of advisors work under a bank, uh, bank owned brokerage. And this is a change I've seen happen. You know, they, every now and then they do a title change. So they went from investment executive to wealth manager now, as if that was going to change anything, saying they were more planning centric and advice centric. And, you know, they basically take these guys who are still incentivized based on assets under management and commissions. And then they basically say, oh, we put together this financial planning team. So you don't have to worry about producing it. They'll do it all for you. But then the financial planning team has to sell the advisor on, yep. hey, let us do this for you. And they're like, well, this takes well, too long. Uh, well, or, and, or wait a minute, you're, you're recommending something that takes yep. away from my AUM. To cut that out. It's a model that doesn't. And I would frame it at an even more basic level. Like you're literally not actually teaching your advisors to add value with advice. When you take planning and centralize it into a central planning department, and we've had a lot of large firms do the same thing here in the US, functionally what you're doing is you're just turning the plan into a product and you're teaching your end reps to sell the plan as a product right alongside the quiver of all the other things they can sell, right? Like I, I can sell you investments in your retirement account. I can sell you this other investment opportunity, or I can sell you a plan. The home office makes all three of those. Yeah. And we don't actually teach them to add value with advice. We teach them to sell the plan, capital T, capital P. Yeah. And then of course, what they quickly figure out is the selling the plan makes people ask more questions Good questions for yeah, finding your financial good. future yeah. and figuring out what you want to do, but time-consuming questions for what usually is not a high dollar value sale. And it's like, oh my God, I make more money by not selling the plan that takes a whole bunch of time and asks more oh. questions for not a huge payout. Because when I can sell other products instead that still pay me more and are more time efficient because it's still a sales-based world of what payoff can you get for what time you put into the sales process instead of trying to make it an actual advice process where you don't train central staff to deliver and pr to produce plans to be sold. You actually train the end advisors to be advisors. I would say to be, produce plans to be ignored in most cases, unfortunately. I find it's just uh, like, it's just this mentality that like, if there's one thing I find that's a fundamental difference in the U.S. space between the RIAs that are, are sort of the advice-centric ones that are growing and the broker-dealer enterprises is that RIAs view advice as an asset. Best thing I can do is attract talent, really smart advisor talent, 
who gives really awesome advice because they command better fees in the marketplace and they attract clients and they grow. And bank and brokerage firms generally view advice not as an asset, but as a liability. It's a legal exposure to be controlled. Because heaven forbid you teach all of the advisors and all of your brokerage branches to give advice. Now you're just on the hook to be sued by what any of them say. So what do we do? Like we tamp down on compliance. We centralize the planning because if it's centralized, I can, I can more easily compliance review a centralized department than a disaggregated bunch of advisors. But there's just this fundamental mentality shift that advisory firms view advice as an asset and brokerage firms historically have viewed advice as a liability. And when you compound that out, again, you get a culture difference, you get a systems difference, and then eventually you get just differences in quality of what you put out in the marketplace. Agreed. Agreed. It's, it's pretty similar here in that regard. So moving on, uh, let's talk about um, what we're seeing coming on the pipe. So I'm sure you get privileged exposure to any number of fascinating new technologies. Yes, we we consult with a lot of startups about like cool, cool stuff that they're working on. Yeah. So what's the most exciting ones you're seeing or what's what's giving you hope for the future and making all this stuff better and better delivery of advice and lives of advisors better? So there are a few trends that I'm I'm seeing and watching that I'm I'm really interested in. One, kind of getting back to just the theme of planning software is I haven't seen the sort of the next category killer in financial planning software. Someone may be out there building it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet, although I, I think it's going to be coming. But I am watching a whole bunch of more specialized planning software tools start to crop up in the marketplace. So in the U.S., this is tax planning software, specifically to go deep on tax planning. Uh, you know, we had a fintech competition XY Planning Network a couple of months ago, and the winner was a software company called Holista Plan. It takes a, you know, a, a 500 page PDF of a tax return, and in seven seconds, OCR scans the whole thing, finds the planning opportunities using their algorithms, and shows uh, the advisor like two pages of here's where your client sits in tax brackets, here's the marginal tax rates, here's all the tax deductions they're eligible for, here's the ones they can't do because their income is too high, here's a whole bunch of observations of, of planning conversations you can have. <laughs> and just take like what might normally be an hour process for one of our player planners turning through all those pages and trying to spot the planning opportunities, seven seconds of software. Now, the advisor still has to have the conversation, make recommendations, apply their knowledge to it. Like I don't think it replaces the advisor, but holy cow, it makes that tax planning process a whole lot faster and easier. And I'm watching this crop up in a whole bunch of specialized areas now. There's a company called Wealthcare, uh, Wealthcare with an H, like W Healthcare, Healthcare, that's doing this with like elder care planning, crafting plans for clients around how are you going to manage your finances if you go through cognitive decline? It's a really tough conversation, but it's a whole lot better to plan for in advance than do actually have to deal with your client when dementia or Alzheimer's begins and you're trying to figure out what the legal rules are. We're seeing stuff crop up in the category of college planning, not just, hey, save in a college account, which is what we always did in the past because that's an accumulation strategy, but like your kid's about to go to college. How do you navigate the financial aid planning? Your kid now has a whole bunch of student yeah. loans. How do you optimize the student loan planning, which is a super complex area in our space because mm-hmm. there's a bunch of government programs and government regulations that overlay with it. So we're seeing all these like specialized planning modules start showing up for advisors that want to go deeper into advice specialties than what the generalist planning software could permit or facilitate in the past. I'm fascinated by some of that showing up. We're finally starting to get a little bit of just good financial portals for clients. 
I still think of it as the PFM category, personal financial management category. To me, one of the biggest misses in the advisor space for the past six years is that basically no one built mint.com for advisors. My personal frustration. We just missed it. And, and you know, we have client portals, but the client portals are very investment centric because most of us are still in the asset gathering investment management business. And the problem is, A, there's just only so much that you see when you log into your investment portal and find out if you're still on track for retirement. Because when I go from 29.7 years to retirement to 29.5 years to retirement, not much about my retirement plan actually changes. There ain't, there ain't much to see logging in to see my plan update. There's not necessarily much to see if I log in and see my investment update. And if anything, we all tell our clients, don't pay attention so much to the markets and the volatility of the markets. So I don't know why on earth we then give them a portal so they can look at it and obsess about it all the time. Uh, to be fair, like I think they should always have access, but you don't need to flog them to log into a portal that's just going to make them notice how volatile their investments are. Yeah, you don't smack them with that in the yeah. first thing they open when they open up. But, but then when you look at personal financial management tools, people that use Mint log in multiple times a week. Your personal capital that built their proprietary version of this for their own business. I mean, I've seen stats out there like their average user logs into their portal, I think like 15 to 25 times a month. And in advisor world, most firms I know at the end of the day are like, hey, what's the adoption on your client portal? It's like, well, 30% of our clients have logged in at least once in the past year. <laughs> like in the past year, it's only a third of them. You make the center of your portal cash flow and spending instead of assets and investments. You go from 30% in the past year to 15 to 25 uh, times a month per client. Yeah. So I think we just largely missed this. Some companies have it to some extent. Uh, eMoney Advisor in the US here is planning mm -hmm. software that has that. And that's why eMoney is charged three times Money Guide Pro for what's not actually very different planning software at the end of the day. I mean, a little bit different, but the math is the math. But eMoney had this portal. They had the PFM portal and they commanded three times the price and still amazes me more companies haven't cropped up to build to build that. But I now see a few that are starting to work on some versions of products around PFM solutions for advisors. And I think we're still in the early stages of what ultimately will be some kind of robotic process op automation equivalents in our advisor world, like just business automation software that spans platforms, that spans systems. I don't know whether it's going to be standalone software or live within a CRM system, mm -hmm. but the depth of our workflows and our ability to have workflows trigger other workflows and tasks that get sent out to people is still ultimately, I think, a little bit lightweight for where it needs to be. But we're starting to build that direction just from a sheer productivity end, like as a firm owner, because I'm a mm -hmm. partner back to an independent advisory firm, like I'm excited about, I'm excited about that stuff. Like it, it won't necessarily replace my advisors, but it will drastically cut back on my administrative staff and let me train them to do other higher value things because a whole bunch of that paperwork, not even just e-signatures, but just starts automating through an entire pipeline with just logic chains that poke me when I need to actually do something. Absolutely. No, I agree. And I very much look forward to that as well. So before we wrap up, there's uh, three questions I typically ask people to basically um, kind of poke your thinking, see where you share some personal insights into your life and your viewpoint. So the first one is if you had one wish that you could use to change anything you wanted on something you're working on, the companies you're involved with, or the industry as a whole, what would it be? So I, ironic in the context of a, of a fintech discussion, Anything you want. if there was one thing that I could change, it would be lifting the standards for the industry around what it takes to be called a financial advisor, that you actually have to have training and experience yeah. in finances, it's yeah. not rocket science, but that you would actually have to have training in it. And because what that ultimately does is that to me is the biggest thing that starts to shift the culture and the value proposition of the whole industry and gets us out of this world of trying to use 
technology to solve people problems and instead lifts up the people. And then we can make awesome technology for more trained people. So I would have been shocked if you had said anything else. <laughs> I was expecting this for producer. I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm, like I'm, I'm racking my brain. I'm like, what's a, like, what's a cool fintechy thing to talk no, about? I'm like, no, no. I'm like, I like the, you got to bring up the people for it. Like bring yeah. up the people and then yeah. we can make awesome software to make them even better bionic superpowered people. For the record, that is my exact answer is professionalization and yeah. bringing up the capacity competency, all of it. So second question, what's been the biggest challenge you faced in getting to where you are today? Oh man, I, I think biggest challenge, like I got to... I got to own that at a personal level. Like it's figuring out how to get out of my own way. Sometimes, you know, I'm very much a, I'm both a vision person. I just like, I just see the world in trends and waves and patterns. Like it's just sort mm. of how my brain works. I, all I can do when I look at the world is see the gaps yep. of what people aren't doing, which is why I've like founded seven companies in the past 10 years. Like all these, <laughs> all these different areas and gaps where I'm like, I see a thing there to solve. I see a thing there to solve. And I, I've got 10 more in my head. I just have to find the right partners to work with mm -hmm. to build those things. But it's a challenge to me because there's so much stuff in my head around ideas and vision of where we can go that I want to be involved with it all. I'm incredibly energized by it. Like I, I love this business. I love what we do. I love how we help people. I think there's so much opportunity to help the advisor world and accepting the own God-given constraint that we all get the same 168 hours in the week and you need to use some of them for sleep and some of them for family. Mm -hmm. uh, there's only so much <laughs> left I can cram in to do work stuff. Just it's been really hard for me. And so figuring out how do I let go of more? How do I hire even more team around me? How do I let go of things that I swore like this is the thing I'll never let go of as a founder? And it's like, nope, got to let go of that. And just getting comfortable with that, getting used to that, learning to do that. I've gotten a whole lot better about it over the past two or three years, in part because I had to because some of our businesses are growing very rapidly. So lots of hiring kind of forces you to make some changes or you're going to break your own company. But just figuring out how to sometimes get out of my own way because there's so much stuff bouncing around my head that I'm like so excited to build and work on and do and forcing myself to get a little bit more focused to say like, you can't lift all this stuff at once. You got to figure out like where you're really going to focus your energies and then trying to do that and stick with it. Fantastic. I can relate. Uh, <laughs> what excites you the most about what you're doing and what gets you up in the morning eager, eager to press forward? What gets me up in the morning? You know, true is saying like, what gets me up first thing in the morning so I can look at my email, which I know is what like everybody tells you not to do from a productivity I do the same. perspective. I'm first thing I want to do is get up and, and look at my email and just see all the stuff that's come in since I wrapped up yesterday. Like there's usually some questions from listeners or readers of like, here's the thing I've been working on, wondering what your thoughts are. We always get a couple that come in every day of like, this article you wrote really impacted my life. This this thing that you, this podcast you did just put me on another trajectory. I just want to let you know, like I just passed my CFP exam, right? I just launched my own firm or I just switched firms to an environment that's so much better. And I just wanted to thank you for helping me get down on that, get down that new track. The just, I'm excited to wake up in the morning and get the feedback that all the stuff we're doing across all the businesses is having real impact to the advisor community. And I kind of view it as a helping advisors help the clients. Like I'm excited at the end of the day for the end impact of what financial planning done well does to help consumers. But my passion for it is helping the advisors, is helping like the, the real advisors who are serious about their craft and want to get better. But we all need a little help. We can all develop further. We all 
want better technology tools to do it. We all want ways to build and create the businesses that fulfill us personally, in addition to being able to serve clients the way we want. And, you know, as I kind of look in the aggregate, all the businesses I've built are around that in some way, shape or form. Like it's either making advisors better, more successful, or some combination of the two, like the technical knowledge and the career success. And what gets me up in the morning, chance to look at my email and see who we impacted in the past day with that mission. Fantastic. Well, uh, having personally emailed you on some of those points, I'd like to say, please keep doing what you're doing because it has been impactful. And more often, I kid you not, I get a lot of young advisors coming to me for career guidance. And I'd say disproportionately more than 50% of them say that your podcast is one of the things that they found that changed the direction of their career. So you should oh, be fantastic. proud of that. And I, I so thrilled this for years to go. So Michael, thank you. thank you so much for your time on this. Awesome. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me out. And again, congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you very much, sir. So that was my interview with Michael Kitsis. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And as you can tell by the uh, interview, I'm clearly a very big fan of everything that he's doing. And quite frankly, I hope he continues doing it for a long time to come. And for all those of you who have not taken the time to discover him, please sign up for his blog at kitsis.com. And if you haven't started listening to his podcast, please do. It will do nothing short of inspire you in your practice. And with that, as always, I am Jason Pereira. This is episode 100. Thank you so much for sticking it out with me this long. I plan to continue this on for quite a while. And in the meantime, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Till next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.